Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have heard Trust Your Gut by Worriers yet, but yo. That's my joy! That's my joy! Hey yo, displace the guilt. What's good, friends and family, neighbors near and far? Welcome to an all new episode of the Yo That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, aka Robert Downey Jr., aka Nate 3.0, back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. On today's episode, I have an incredible chat with Eric Bazilian of the Hooters. He was so incredibly generous with his time, and I love the conversation we had, and I can't wait to share it with you. But first... Hello, my friends. If you're a longtime companion of the show, welcome back. And, you know, if you're a newbie and this is your first dance with us, welcome. Hope you are all having an incredible summer that is already in August. Oh, my God, this summer is speeding by. I swear to God, it was just May the other day. And then, you know, I blinked and all of a sudden I'm saying goodbye to July. Unreal. I had so much planned that I wanted to achieve this summer. And you want to know how much of it I started? Uh, Maybe 5%, which is fine. It's fine. I'm not going to sit here and beat myself up. I've had a crazy busy year, and I just got to be happy with all I've done and appreciate that and just be ready to regroup and attack the rest of the year with the same focus I started it with. Everybody deserves a break. Well, how's by you? Are you taking care of yourselves, taking stock of where you are, and reaching out when you need a shoulder to lean on? Good. Let's all do our best to take care of ourselves and to take care of others. And you know, I guess this is all on my mind because we've lost two greats since the last episode, Sinead O'Connor and Paul Rubens. And the loss of both of them has affected me, but in different ways. And if I can, I'd just kind of like to speak out loud about them for a bit. You know, with Sinead, my heart broke as I saw the outpouring of love across the world for such a brilliant and tortured artist who dealt with a life and career where she was constantly shit on. And all I kept thinking through all of the praise and all of the tributes was, you know, maybe she needed to see this. Maybe it shouldn't have had to take her death for us to tell her how important she was to us. To show her this love in the face of all of the mockery and all of the hatred she experienced throughout her time on this planet. You know, I don't know that it would have created a different outcome, but I bet she could have used that. I just think we should try and strive to let the people we love know how much they mean to us while they're still here. Hell, even the people we passively like. That was kind of my desire to do this show, to be able to talk to people whose creativity has moved me, you know, from idols to peers, and just be able to tell them, thank you. Thank you for creating something. You know, like the great Tupac once said, you are appreciated. And with Paul Rubens, you know, Pee Wee Herman was such a staple in my life, not just in childhood, but through to this very day. He made being the weird kid feel a little less lonely. 
and the amount of smiles he put on not just my face, but the whole world's, God, it's otherworldly. I never wavered being a Pee Wee fan. You know, like Sinead, Paul experienced the derailment of a career uh, due to scandal. But unlike her, in the past decade or so, he was able to reclaim the love and admiration that was seemingly lost in that movie theater in Miami all those years ago. He was able to bring Pee Wee Herman back from what we may call today the cancellation and make a whole new generation of faces smile. He got to see how loved he was despite everything. No, but it's hard to process sorrow about someone who has brought so much joy to my entire life. So on the day he passed, I decided instead to smile in his honor. And I picked up my ukulele and I started strumming along and singing the theme song to Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's absolutely impossible to sing that song without a smile on your face. And if you follow me on the socials at Yo That's My John, if you don't, You can check it out. You can see a reel of me doing just that, smiling and singing the theme as a tribute to the man who meant a whole heck of a lot to me. So to Paul and to Sinead, you will both be deeply missed. We're going to take a brief break and then my interview with Eric Bazilian. Yo, That's My John is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, it is festival season, and you know me, I love a festival, and the secret to enjoying a festival is to stay hydrated. Liquid IV has you covered while you prep before, power through to the headliner, and recover after the weekend. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks. Man, I love Liquid IV. It comes in a convenient packaging, and it's tasty. When you see me at the Exponential Music Festival this fall, you know that I will have Liquid IV on me. And it comes in 12 delicious, refreshing flavors to keep your hydration routine exciting. All right, strawberry used to be my favorite, but they have this new one. It's strawberry lemonade, and it is a banger. One stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. So Liquid IV partners with leading organizations for innovative solutions to help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. Okay, and you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the promo code YTMJ at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using the promo code YTMJ at liquidiv.com. Do it, and let's get our fests on. My guest today is a musician, songwriter, arranger, producer, and founding member of the band The Hooters. Alongside Rob Hyman and Davis Sikkanen and a whole cast of others, he has performed all around the world on some of the largest stages of all time, including Live Aid, Amnesty International, and Roger Waters' 1990 performance of The Wall. 
as a songwriter, he has written and arranged for a diverse array of artists, ranging from Cyndi Lauper, Ricky Martin, and Billy Myers, to Willie Nelson, Bon Jovi, and Robbie Williams. Most notably, he is responsible for writing the 1995 classic One of Us for the incredible Joan Osborne. Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Eric Bazilian. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Eric Bazilian. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Yo, That's My John. Well, thanks. That is my John. Thanks for having me. Your (laughs) John is my John. Oh, I love it. Um, So before we get into anything, uh, you just celebrated a birthday, a big one too, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Coming up on it, man. It was really, uh, um, it, it was, you know, it was a thing. And then I got through it and I was like, what happened? Oh, yeah. I'm the same guy I was the day before. So, yeah. That's right. Just another ring on the tree. Yep. Exactly. Well put. <laughs> I got to I got to hear um, your um, guest uh, DJ appearance on XPN <laughs> to celebrate as well, which was fantastic with our pal Kristen Curtis. Um, some great choices in there, man. Thanks. And that was that was half of it. I mean, there was I, I really had to kill some of my darlings. There were some 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 songs that I really wish I'd I'd gotten on there, but you only have so much time. That's right. It's so true. Um, so I always like to start these things kind of uh, just telling people a little bit uh, about uh, um, uh, a weird connection I have uh, to them. And uh, oh, cool. And uh, and for for you. Um, you're somebody who I've wanted to have like dream. You were like a dream guest on this show just because, um, uh, I, 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 you've been in my life, uh, forever, um, because, uh, you guys played my high school, um, a few years before me, but you played uh, North Penn high school and, um, wow. and, and everyone talked about it. Like you were like just the talk, you know, for like the next decade of people who went through that high school. <laughs> I remember that show very clearly too, because we were we were mixing Nervous Night in New York, and we drove down. We left New York City probably like you know rush hour, like five o'clock. Um, came down, played the show, and drove back up to New York and went back into the studio like at two in the morning that night to to listen to the mix that was that the engineer had been working on. Um, that was a, that was a blast, and the show was great. It was packed. It was a big auditorium too, or a big gym, whatever we played in. It was a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And like, I, like I said, like you know, everybody that was like a tale passed down. Like, did you know the Hooters played here? And you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I got to play on that stage, so I get to tell people I played on a stage that the Hooters played on. <laughs> um, yeah. So, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up. Where Where were you born? I was born at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I just ended up back there and all three of my kids ended up back there, although n- none of them were born there. But um, yeah, I was born there. My, my dad was a uh, uh, I just finished medical school there, in fact. So I guess that's why that's where they took my mom. And uh, and I, I popped out there and I grew up in well, I lived. I think I lived the first year of my life in Feltonville which is sort of a lot of people don't know where that is. It's sort of like the gateway to Northeast Philly, like Roosevelt Boulevard, um, like in the letters, you know, uh, A Street, B Street, C Street. Um, and um, then my dad was in the Army. We lived in Texas for a couple of years and then came back. 
And I, I, I lived for a year at Norristown State Hospital, a hospital for, I believe, the criminally insane, where my dad was a resident. And we lived, actually, my dad was a, not a resident. He was a psychiatric resident gotcha. um, doing his training. But we lived actually on the, uh, on the premises. And I remember, you know, my, my friends were paranoid schizophrenics. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. So it really did prepare me for a life in rock and roll. I was just going to say, like, uh, you probably, uh, it was like a, uh, a welcoming home when you started meeting some of the people that you've <laughs> bounced around with. Yeah, and they were cool, you know? Absolutely. And they were drooling. <laughs> um, and you, your mom was a, a classical pianist, is that correct? Yeah. My mom was sort of a child prodigy. Uh, she she went to Curtis when she was nine. I think she was the youngest student they'd ever had at that point. Um, and she she um, she was studying at Penn. That's where that's where, where she met my dad. And um, then they got married. She got married young, got pregnant with me, and then never went back to school and really never went back to performing. It turns out she loved playing piano, hated performing. Really? So I, so I guess I got my love for performing from my very extroverted dad. Um, did, was it, so did you start playing very early then, um, in life? Well, yeah. I mean, I started taking piano lessons probably when I was six, but that, that didn't work out so well. I, 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 the teacher and I did not hit it off and, and I just lost patience one day and said, Nope, I'm done. I always loved music though. And I would teach myself stuff. I taught myself how to read music a little bit. I remember playing West Side Story. When I was probably nine, I think eight or nine, I had the, the sheet music, learning how to play Maria, my mom helping me through the, the rough patches on that. And then um, I had an uncle, my, my father's brother, who taught me some, some uh, guitar chords when I was eight or nine. And um, uh, that took, that was really fun. And by the time I was 10, I learned how to play a couple of songs. And one of them was this uh, Joan Baez song in Spanish called El Preso Numero Nueva. And yeah, you know, I didn't know that there was anything unusual about that, you know, about a 10 year old Anglophone being able to do that. So my uncle got me on the Gene London show, which was a local TV show in Philadelphia. And I performed it, you know, I think, I think pretty well. Unfortunately, all the tapes got destroyed when, when, when they moved the studio in the seventies. So, so, so it's all apocryphal. But, um, then, uh, I was 10 when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan and like every other boy in my generation, I saw that and went, I want to do that. And unlike most of the boys in my generation, I already knew how to play an instrument fairly well. So when I put, said I'm putting a band together the next day, I put a band together the next day. Nice. Nice. What, um, what were, were you um, coming up with your own kind of creations at that point or were, were you all just playing uh, other stuff? It was play. It was play the Beatles, 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 a little bit of animals, a little bit of Rolling Stones, whatever was out there. No, I, I wasn't. I didn't get into the songwriting thing that early. I mean, I knew that like the Beatles were, were songwriters. That was a big thing for them. But my my brain wasn't developed enough yet to to, yeah. uh, to really capture what you know what was would have been necessary to get into that. So I just wanted to play guitar. Can you remember the uh, first Beatles song you learned? Actually, I can. Um, and it's funny because it, it, I didn't I didn't want to learn how to play the chords. I wanted to learn how to play the guitar solos. And the first one I learned was Till There Was You. Really? Which I don't know if you know how that one goes. Let me pick up a guitar. Uh, do I have a guitar in tune here? I'm in my studio. I haven't, 
I haven't been here all summer because I've been I've been you know in in Europe, but um, no, not Thailand. Yeah, that was close enough. So I actually, you know, there there were no YouTube tutorials. Right. Um, you know, I didn't even have a cassette machine that I could I could I isolate a note. So I would take the needle, put it down approximately in the spot where the guitar solo started on the on the vinyl, find the first note. Da, that sounds right. Da, okay. Put the needle down. Da, da. No. No. Da, da. Okay. Da, da, da. So on and so forth until I finally got, and so on and so forth. Oh, God, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It is, it is. It was labor intensive. Let me tell you. I was just going to say the the work that we used to have to do to learn things like lyrics and and songs just by breaking things down, whereas now it's like, you know, uh, just run it through some program and it'll give you the notes, you know, like it's (laughs) it's 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 unbelievable. Um, So so, you know, Ed Sullivan lights the spark and you kind of start that band. Um, Is is that a band where you start playing like uh, parties and stuff like that uh, uh, for friends or just playing? Yeah. I mean, our first gig was actually uh, our, our sixth grade graduation party at my house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we that's... did. Uh, I think we did three songs, and and all of the ten and eleven year old girls really did chase us around the block. That's awesome. That's it's, it's, so. It's a success story, you know, like because it's a, it's a very a minor are. success story. And then <laughs> the following um, following fall, that band played on on the Gene London show. Oh, so we, on there twice. I was I was on there once by myself, and then uh, once with my my first band. We were called the Limestones because um, the John Lennon's band that Paul McCartney joined was the Quarrymen. I see. So I it. thought the Limestones would make sense. Yeah, you know, it's just one <laughs> of those flashes. Um, but we played on on the Gene London show, and and I didn't tell anybody because I was embarrassed. But uh, I think we were probably pretty good. We did a hard day's night. And and House of the Rising Sun, wow! And and I remember that um, the you know the, the the line in House of the Rising Sun was, and God I know I'm one. And and Mr. London asked me if I could not sing the word God because that might be controversial. Could I please sing? And me I know I'm one. And of course I totally forgot and I sang God and nobody ever said anything. About it. But it was the beginning of a trend for me with the God thing, right? Yeah, for real, for real. It started early. The um, it's it, you know, it's fun. It's funny you say that because like um, everybody always always goes straight to um, um, no one of us, but like the thematically appears a lot. You know, uh, the the evangelists in in satellite and uh, and you know even uh, Saint Teresa and like there there's definitely a theme. Um, were you uh, spiritual as or are you currently? Uh, uh, you got a couple hours. <laughs> um, I, I I was not. No, absolutely not. I mean, I you know I was raised in the you know um, Reformed Jewish family. Which basically meant you went to you know Sunday school and learned a little bit of Hebrew and heard some uh, some some fun Bible stories, um, but um, n- not religious at at, at all uh, at that point. Um, but for you know for some reason when I started writing songs, these Bible stories started popping in. You know, like all you zombies. We wrote that we wrote that January nineteen eighty. That was that is the oldest surviving Hooters song, and you know those. Noah, Moses, Noah—they just popped into 
into our heads. You know, I guess it's our our collective un- subconscious. Um, that, you know, more as as cultural icons and you know yeah. as religious things. But 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 who knows really? You know, I mean, I've gone through, I've gone around the block with the whole thing. You know, like from from you know this can't be an accident to yeah, this is all an accident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I always find it. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll all find out someday, right? Like, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we will or, or we won't. I, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. Um, so, so you're playing around in, in high school uh, uh, with the limestones and stuff like that, and then you, uh, you you go to college. Does that break up the limestones immediately, or did they last? Actually, that long? I think the limestones lasted about as long as it takes to chip a limestone out of a quarry. I think we, I think we, after Ed Sullivan, I don't think we did anything yeah. with that band. Um, it was hard to find musicians. You know, when you're uh, 11 years old, it's hard to find guys who actually can play. Um, the, the drummer wasn't a problem because really he just had to do that. Boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, bap. Um, but to find, um, I originally I wanted to play bass because Paul McCartney was my first favorite Beatle, um, and um, you know I, I, he looked like he was having a lot of fun. But you know then I couldn't find a guitar player, so I figured it's easier to find somebody and teach him how to play two notes on the bass than find somebody and teach him how to play all six strings of the guitar. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I spent you know my junior high years trying to find people who could play. Finally, I was in. Junior year in high school, yeah, junior year in high school, I found it was my first real band. Um, it was a, actually it was a um, uh, a kid I met in, in Sunday school, a synagogue, who kept telling me that he 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 was a singer and and could write songs, and I didn't really believe him. And then somehow it turned out he was going he was in school high school with my drummer, who was my my oldest friend. He was the guy I actually saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan with. I was at his house and um, he had graduated from drums to bass. Turned out he was a rounded musician who would have known. He wouldn't have known if it hadn't been for the Beatles. Um, but he he knew the same kid from high school. And he said, you got, you got to meet this kid, Paul. He's a great singer and a great rhythm guitar player. Like, OK. So we got together and like, wow, this kid can really sing. He can. He doesn't have any aspirations to, to beat me as a sh- shredding lead guitar player. He's happy to play rhythm. We found a great drummer, and Evil Seed was born. Okay, okay. And uh, why Evil Seed? We were not a hard rock band. That, that was the name of a, um, I guess you would call it a. Back then, we called it a dirty book. <laughs> but it, it was, and it actually had something to do with this woman, girl who was the spawn of Satan, and was, you know, would work her magic through um, <clears throat> carnal means. Yes. But we named our band for that for that book and um and we were really good we were really good we, you know if we did covers it was hendrix or jeff beck or cream a little bit of beatles but we had some really good original songs um so did, did you like uh what what was kind of that early songwriting like were you kind of taking primary on or lead on that or no i wasn't because again i didn't really care about writing songs that was paul paul vernick was the the singer uh, songwriter mm-hmm. i would i would do the arrangements you know i would write the 10 minute instrumental part yeah. in the middle of the song we actually had one song that was called sandwich because it was my 10 minute instrumental uh composition sandwiched in between his little two minute verse <laughs> and chorus that's great um but um 
that band lasted um, through junior year. We broke up senior year because, you know, there were other factors that came in then, um, uh, you know, things that happened in the late 60s, early 70s. It had to do with chemicals and um, uh, some people dealt with it better, better than others. I choose not to deal with it at all. I chose not to, but uh, some in the band did not make that same choice and uh, things did not work out, which is very sad. Yeah, and uh, uh, it, it, sadly a, a familiar story from from those times too. Like you know, just yeah. Um, so you you went to college for physics. Um, <laughs> was w- how did you get there? <laughs> like, well, well, again, I was I was the generation that was ex- it was expected that I would go to college after I graduated high school, and sort of semi expected that I would be pre med, like my daddy before me. Yeah. Who really, he didn't care, but my grandparents were all like, yeah, you're going to be a doctor. Um, you know, I just figured I'd, I'd, I'd go with the flow there. But in the meantime, I, I met Rob Hyman my first week of school in an electronic music class with a Moog synthesizer. Nice. And ironically, he walked into the room. I was sitting on the floor playing someone's acoustic guitar. And after we spent an hour and a half with the Moog synthesizer, we went upstairs to a piano and we jammed acoustically for the rest of the day. That's crazy. So, so like it was like right away that you guys just connected. Oh yeah, I mean it was the first time. I remember this really clearly. It was the first time that I found a musician, a, a rock musician, who, um, let's put it this way: all of a sudden, I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. yeah. Um, this was. I mean, this was somebody who really challenged me, and we jamming with him was like I had to be on my toes. And so did he. It was really cool. I mean, I remember we really kind of looked at each other and went like, wow, did, did we just do that? Yeah. And he already had a band. He had a band called Wax that had had, had a, a a bit of a career already. I'd seen them a couple of times opening for different bands. You know, I saw them open for the Birds. Um, and they'd had a, had a record deal. They'd made a record. They'd broken up. They'd reformed. Uh, into a version of a band that did not have a guitar player. So, hey, need a guitar player? I got one for you. So I joined that band, and, and we did some gigs. Um, and then right at the – Rob Rob graduated, and Rob and Rick Chertoff, who was the drummer in that band, they both graduated that year. And we tried, tried keeping the band together for a while, but it ultimately broke up because we were trying to do cover gigs at, at – in south jersey and it we were just not made for for for, to be a cover band the um uh so so then um uh uh, here's a a very random question i have for you um eventually that leads to baby grand right and um baby grand puts out ancient medicine and and i gotta ask cover of ancient medicine um did uh uh when when Questlove released his food book were you like hey that's the cover of our album just with you in vegetables yeah yeah i mean we weren't the first to to do that i mean there i think there's some renaissance painter who did that okay um i remember i think matthew what was the name of the photographer Matthew Freeman or something like that, but he had been doing um, photographs like that for, for, for magazines. So we just thought, let's get one for our, our album cover. It's super cool. It's, it's just a good look. Um, so, so you guys, you know, um, there, what, two albums, baby grand, Yeah, baby grand and, and then ancient medicine. 
Um, and then, and then, so what happened there that that kind of split? Like, what was the, uh, well, you know, we thought we were going to be the next Beatles and, um, uh, we weren't, Yeah. you know, I mean, musically, musically it was, um, I mean, we're all incredibly proud of, of that. It was very advanced. Uh, it was sort of like Steely Dan on major steroids. Um, you know, lyrically it was kind of obscure, um, musically, I, I wish we'd gotten paid by the note, um, but it wasn't really connecting. You know, we put out two albums. Nobody really cared. Um, we did some live shows and sometimes it was great. And sometimes it was just, you know, it just kind of went over people's heads or <laughs> between their knees, uh, whatever. But uh, at some point, Rob and I just, just you know, looked at each other and went, is, is this happening? I, I don't know if this is really happening. And and we had a singer in the band who was a great singer, but, you know, for whatever reason, we just sort of felt like that maybe wasn't the, the key to the future for us. And we looked at each other and, you know, can you sing lead? Uh, I don't know. Can you? Uh, I don't know. Maybe if we both do it, it'll it'll work. We can fool some people. We've been fooling people for 43 years into thinking we're singers. I was going to say it was a pretty <clears throat> successful decision. Uh, it, it it turned out pretty well. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it did, you know. And then, you know, the question came up, you know, musically, what road are we going to go down? You know, because I was, Rob and I both were, you know, we were technical players. We We really wanted to push the envelope that way. But at the same time, we wanted an audience. We wanted people to have fun. We wanted people to dance. And, you know, this was the end of 1979 going into 1980. And the British ska invasion had just begun. And we went, we went and saw madness. And it was revelatory. It was kind of like seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And, you know, we just said, as far as we knew, there were no bands in the U.S. that were doing ska. And Rob grew up going to Jamaica. He loved reggae music. He loved that whole culture. Uh, he'd been kind of pushing me, trying to push me in that direction a little bit. I wasn't into the real slow down tempo reggae, reggae stuff, but the energy of ska was like, yeah, let's do this. And there was an there was some sacrifice. You know, we didn't get to shred the same way. We had to like, you know, fit into that that thing. And and it was fun. You know, from our first live show, the audience was going nuts. They'd never heard anything like it before. It, there's just an energy to it that like is so incredibly captivating. Um, and, and, you know, I was completely blown away because like I said, you know, the, the Hooters has been a through line in my entire life, but I didn't know really about the early sky years. And, and, right. uh, you know, I guess it was like a year or two ago, I'm reading, um, the Mark Wasserman books, Kaboom. And I'm like, yeah. and, and, and all of a sudden there's a chapter on you guys and I'm like, what the hell? And then like, so yeah. then I started doing some research at all. And I was just like, how did like, because I was a huge ska fan, I still am. Um, and so like the fact that this was like a blind spot of like the fact that you know like two things i love i never knew existed it would be like finding out reese's peanut butter cups exist after loving chocolate and peanut butter your entire life you know it was really weird wow that's brilliant yeah i might have to quote you on that that's a you can have it it's all yours um yeah you know and and really for the first couple of years we were we were a dedicated ska band um everything we did had to have that and and then there was all you zombies, which wasn't ska. That was a, you know, a, a, a one drop reggae. Um, and we did a lot of reggae songs as well. I wrote some, uh, some originals, a lot of re reggae covers. Um, 
And, you know, I think there are people that thought maybe we were Scott traders at some point. Really? But it, it, was, it was never like we never made a decision to not do Scott anymore. It's just things evolved. You know, um, I picked up a mandolin at one point and all of a sudden we had and we danced. We had that intro to and we danced. Um, we always had the melodica from the beginning. That's where the band got its name. Our 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 friend uh, was engineering our first demo session. He said, let me get a level on that Hooter. So, OK, we're going to call it a Hooter. We're going to call the band the Hooters. And that was something that, you know, um, Augustus Pablo played a lot in, in, in reggae. That was a real signature sound for, for, for a lot of for some reggae artists. Joe Jackson had used it. Um, uh, but, you know, we sort of moved beyond that. Um, actually, the Amore album has some ska, like a concubine is, is a flat out, you know, fast, up-tempo, two-tone ska with a questionable misogynistic lyric, which, uh, you know... Time. Time changes, get, man. <laughs> time, you know, kind of like John Lennon writing um, uh, Run for Your Life, which he regretted writing because it's a horrible misogynistic lyric, but, you know, yeah, what are you going to do? I got, um, I, I got some in mind, but uh, luckily nobody's ever heard mine, so... Uh... <laughs> oh, good. Well, you're lucky. <laughs> Obscurity has its, has its advantages. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, and the ska thing was always sort of there. And, and you know, we, we would periodically, you know, even in you know recent years, like, can we get back to the ska thing? And it was just like, we couldn't force it. We tried to force it a couple of times. It didn't work. The band was also different. You know, we had we had um, Bobby Woods and John Kuzma in the original band who, you know, for whatever reason, that was that was the ska band. And by the time we evolved into the into the version with, with John Lilly and Fran Smith, and then later adding uh, Tommy Williams as a sixth member, it was like, I don't know if we're ever going back there. Then last year, Rob and I write a song called "Why Won't You Call Me Back," and it's a ska. Yeah, and, and we're great, like, it's a great song, and it's too. a great one, and it's got a sax in it, which like, you know, I learned how to play sax so that we wouldn't have to hire a sax player in the Hooters. And uh, I, I learned five notes. It's perfect. It's all you need. And, and you know, I, you know, I've always played, we've tried to keep one or two sax songs in the show. It's kind of like a novelty thing, but all of a sudden here, I, I got to start taking the instrument seriously again. And there's a lot of skill. The lip thing, man, you know, took me, I'm still working on getting that back. Yeah, I was I was a clarinet player and uh and I've tried to pick it back up every once in a while and I'm just like, "Oh no, I guess I guess those days are gone." Same thing with uh I played uh I played horn, I played uh low brass. I was a baritone player. And uh oh, cool. and you know, I used to be able to play that in my sleep. And now like I'm like, that's not a note. Whatever I just tried to do, there, <laughs> that's not a note. Uh, <laughs> it will come back. I mean, if you want to, it will come back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking about the, the new album, though, one of the things that completely blew my mind and fascinated me was um, you, you guys imported the um, the the four track Porta Studio um, demos into Pro Tools to, to yeah. work on some of this. Well, how yeah. how <laughs> how what is that how? like playing playing with it's like time travel, man? Like how it, it's crazy. Well, I mean, first of all, we had to find a working Porta Studio. Yeah, because because mine. The original one had had died. The, the the rubber pulleys disintegrate, and I'd had it restored a few years back, but then then the motor died. So we went on Reverb and found one. Um, uh, three days later, we got it. It worked, um, and it it was really amazing pulling up like the uh, the, the Pete Rose demo, which um, 
I mean, this, you know, the story behind Pete Rose, first of all, you know, who's Pete Rose, you know, uh, some people know, some people don't. He was, he was the, he was what got the Phillies into the world series in 1980. And I wrote that song in my head while he was hitting that home run. Oh, it's amazing. During the, during the playoff game, I, I heard the whole thing in my head and um, we played the song live for a while. And then two years later, 1982, after I'd gotten my, my Porter studio, I decided to do a demo. It's just learning, you know, in learning how to use the Porter studio, I'm going to do a demo of Pete Rose. So I had an 808 drum machine and I programmed the beat and, you know, recorded that with a bass. And then I recorded an electric guitar and the sax, you know, into a, you know, a crappy little uh, SM57 into a, a, a handmade compressor that I built from a kit. And even the vocal in the beginning, you know, because all of these ska instrumentals, they would have a name like James Bond. Da -da -da -da. So this was Pete Rose. And the vocal on, on our record is from that original demo. It's me in 1982 going, Pete Rose. Unbelievable. And um, the, the, uh, we, we kept as much as we could from that, but we ended up keeping the lead guitar and the sax from 1982. And built the band around that. That's wild. I would, like, what would, you know, is there an emotional kind of reaction to working with that stuff? Like, because I, I can only imagine, like, it's like duetting with a younger version of yourself. Yeah. You know, it, it made me really happy to, to, to see that I was having that much fun back then. Yeah. You know, yeah. because of anything, sometimes I think... You know, now that we've gotten back to this place where we're, where we're playing this fun music and 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 having this this party again, I feel sometimes we might have lost the plot a little bit. We might have taken ourselves a little little too seriously at times. I think it's a trap that everyone falls into at some point. But getting back to that and just hearing that the joy, you know, and I remember where I was. We were house sitting for a friend in Westchester, and I remember I had everything set up on the floor. And I'm like, thinking, wow, I can do this. I can make a record in the living room. That's so cool. Um, so y you guys uh, started releasing singles um, and uh, back then. And then um, uh, MMR starts, you know, playing you a lot. Um, uh, and then somehow you end up opening for The Who and The Clash and <laughs> Santana at JFK. Like, how does that happen? Hard work. <laughs> Uh, well, obviously, actually, really, yeah, hard work and some luck. You know, we we um, about two weeks into the band's existence, we made our first demo. We did it just um, eight songs live to, to two track. And um, one of them got over to MMR. Michael Tierson had locked the doors of the studio, said, I'm only going to play music I want to play. And he called Rob up and said, you got anything from your new band? And. You know, Rob went down, you know, 10 o'clock at night and Michael Tierson played Man in the Street, a, a cover of a ska instrumental with my my first sax solo. I'd been playing sax for two weeks at that point. And um, not only did Michael play it, it got in, it found its way into regular rotation. So all of a sudden they're playing us on the radio. And our shows, our live shows just kept getting bigger and bigger. We were playing five nights a week. At, at Werner's Lounge in Levittown, four sets a night. And, the, you know, the, sh the shows just got bigger and bigger. 
the, the, it was a crazy mix in the audience because we had the you know lo- local bikers up in Levittown, kind of a tough area back then. But then the Jamaicans heard about us. So we'd have all these dreadlock Rastas coming up from West Philly dancing next to these bikers. It was amazing. It's like, why can't the world be like that now? That's what I that's what I always feel about ska music and I always try to like explain to people is it it's such a joyous form and it brings so many, you know, different people together that like I'll never understand where the hatred for it comes or where the disdain. Like it just makes no sense. I talked to the guys, I don't know if you're familiar with Catbite at all, um but oh, I talked sure. to them. I talked to them about it um uh last year. Like I just don't get it. Like why why something that brings so many people so much joy is just shit on so much you know the, I mean, the thing about scott is there there is a line it's it's easy for it to move into a, become a cliche of itself you know into into kitsch mm-hmm. and um you know I, you got to be real careful with that um i think cat bite are successful in in navigating that um part of it, you know they've got a sense of humor about themselves they do cat fight they do cat light yeah um um but you know, I mean, ska, ska can be very limiting, and it can. There's also there's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a not not elitism. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But you know, where like if you're not pure ska, you suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, there's there's a bit of that attitude too. So it kind of works both ways. That's um, a good point. It's a really good point. You know, but um, yeah, but to get back, to get back to like you know how do we how do we get from uh, from Vernon's to JFK Stadium? You know, MMR helped a lot. Then we did our first single. We did Fighting on the Same Side. Um, same thing with that. They just, they got behind it. By then, we were playing Monday nights at at, uh, at Grendel's Lair, 5th and South. Uh, and, you know, moving into the city, you know, the, our first, first week, maybe we had 40 people. Second week, maybe we had 60. Within a few months, the line was around the block. It was like the Beatles at the Cavern. I mean, it was really crazy. And we just kept putting out singles and... MMR stayed behind us, you know, 1982 rolls around, the Who is playing at JFK Stadium with the Clash and Santana, and all of a sudden we're on the bill too. That's amazing. Like, I, I don't even know how you mentally kind of process that jump, like, I, it, you know, but but it, it speaks to, you know, your your skill as a band, and, and much like you were saying in the Cavern, like, playing four sets a night, five five days a week, you know, you had to have been ready for it, you know, like, oh. or when, when, when you know, like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, you know, 10,000 10, hours. 10,000 hours. We got our 10,000 hours, that's for sure. Um, no, but that, that that's that's you know we were ready and I, I was I was gobsmacked to be on stage with uh, the same stage that the Who were going to play. I, the Who, seeing the Who, I saw the Who live for the first time in May of '69, the day Tommy was released, and I guess I was 15, and that was as as powerful as the Beatles on Ed Sullivan for me. A it was the loudest thing I'd ever heard, but just the energy that they had was unbelievable. And Tommy, you know, I I just read. Uh, Pete Townsend's interview in Rolling Stone about Tommy. So I kind of knew the process that had gone into it. And that was one of the things that really got me interested in songwriting. Finally, you know, after, after years of just wanting to play guitar and, you know, arrange music, suddenly, you know, I got a window into his process and, and, you know, taking bits of, of, of earlier songs and, you know, do recombinant DNA. 
uh, you know, in, you know, finding this concept, this sort of science fiction concept based on Robert Heinlein, who I was a big fan of at the time. Um, so, yeah, we're going to play with The Who. Now, Pete Townsend, turns out, was not the most approachable guy in the world, so I kind of left him alone. Uh, so I, I actually didn't get to meet them. But we did get a nice picture taken with Mick Jagger, who came to the show. And now 40-some years later, I'm actually, I am friendly with Pete Townsend. We email. He's very cordial, and he's been very helpful, and apparently he's a big fan. So, oh, that's yay, awesome. Pete. Did, um, did, 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 did he remember that show? Uh, or, or are you, you know, guys playing? We have not. I, I, I tread lightly with him. I don't. I don't want to yeah. say any more than you know necessary. Uh-huh. But he was very helpful. When I was having uh, some vocal issues, he put me in touch with Roger last um, last um, uh, spring, right before we went on tour. And Roger was amazing. Just he hooked me up with the, this. The he's sort of the the uh, the Yoda of of uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors in in Boston who said. I went to see, he squeezed me in. He said, basically, the good news and bad news are the same thing. There's nothing wrong with your voice. You just got to learn to use it better. Yeah. That's, that's wild. Yeah. The, um, and that's gotta be a scary thing. Like, uh, when the thing that, um, you've made your, your life around essentially, um, all of a sudden doesn't want to work like it used to like, yeah, it's, oh, it's terrifying. And, you know, fortunately, by the time we got to got to Germany, it was working great, and then two days after the tour ended, I got laryngitis. Really? And in fact, I'm still like, I'm 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 living on a prayer here to quote my friend Desmond Child, um, that because day after tomorrow I'm going to be on stage in Youngstown, Ohio, and it better work. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, so, so you guys, uh, then, uh, do Amore and, and then, um, uh, Nervous Night comes and then everything blows up <laughs> and then, and then you're, you're playing on some of the biggest stages, uh, the most viewed shows of all time. Um, uh, I, uh, a- Andy King was on the show, um, last year, you know, we're disc golf buddies and, uh, he uh, was telling us, uh, some stories, uh, some backstage stories, but what was, what was the, the process or the, the day of live aid like for you, like mentally, like <laughs> complicated. Yeah, it was complicated. There was a lot going on that day, um, for me personally, which kind of, uh, kind of was like a smokescreen between me and what was actually happening at Live Aid. I actually saw most of the show on TV at home. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, plus it was brutally hot out. And after a while, it was just kind of like, I'd like to be able to see what's going on on stage and, and hear the music. So I drove home. Was you know, I lived was living in the city, 15 minutes, I'm home. I drove back down at the end for the, for the finale. Our actual performance was a total blur. You know, yeah. we were, but we were on stage for 10 minutes. Yeah. And then, uh, 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 I guess, uh, Geldof didn't want you guys there. Is that, is that true? Or is that like, uh, I, okay. Quite, quite literally the, the, uh, the first line of, uh, the, the one feature that Ro- that Rolling Stone did on us says, who the fuck are the Hooters said Bob Geldof when he saw the schedule for the, uh, the Philadelphia lineup. Of, uh, of Live Aid. Now, if I were Bob Geldof and I saw a band called the Hooters that I'd never heard of, I probably would have gone, who the fuck are the Hooters? Yeah. I don't think he wanted or didn't want us on the show. I think he just didn't know just who the fuck know. we were and asked. Okay. That makes sense. You know, I mean, the fact that he 
chose to omit us from the DVD when that was released 20 years later. Uh, they, they, that, I, I wish that had gone the other way. Yeah, sure. Um, and ironically, I mean, and Andy wouldn't know this because he was gone by then, but the the week that that, that, that was released, Bob Geldof opened for us in Germany. Oh, my God. <laughs> he opened for us at a club, and he kept himself scarce. Yeah. Yeah, the one time we crossed in a hallway, he just like kind of sheepishly looked away. Like he knew he shit the bed. Yeah, goddamn, that's crazy. That's just crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Um, so um, I'm I'm gonna show you just because uh, I'm I'm a goof and no one else can see this, but um, I've got my uh my my vinyl here of uh, <laughs> one way home. Uh, uh, but uh, so satellite becomes like your your ticket to Europe. Like that kind of breaks you in Europe. Is that right? Johnny B was our ticket to Germany. Okay. Satellite was our ticket to the UK. Okay. Unfortunately, our ride in the UK was very brief. Yeah. We got to ride first class for about 15 minutes. Uh, and then for, for whatever reason, not, it, didn't, it didn't take in the UK. Germany, on the other hand, is the gift that has continued to keep on giving. Yeah. Um, oh, and then Johnny B, uh, directed by um, a, a young unknown David Fincher. Is that right? That's right. How about that? My God, um, you, you gotta you gotta call him back up and get some placement. Oh and, yeah, uh, you know? come on, Dave. Where's that um, sequel to Seven Eight? There it is. <laughs> um, but uh, but so you, you guys, you know, at at a certain point, kind of take a take a break, and 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 you just start writing. You know, you guys start writing. I mean, even before that, the obviously the Cindy Lauper album and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. But like, but but it's funny to me that like something that you were so reluctant to do early on became such a dominant thing in your life. Um, kind of working with other people and all. And and one of the things that I, I recognize um, is you write really well for and with females um and and it, is there is there anything i guess what's what's the magic in that potion that that just kind of clicks for you because like it, it just some of the stuff you've been able to put out i mean like even the stuff you're you're currently doing you know like the stuff with with alexis like is just mm -hmm. like it's phenomenal and, and and there's just like a connection there that uh, i like girls girls like me <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I've had some great collaborations with guys. I mean, you know, I, I wrote Robbie Williams for a single. I was just going to, that's also on my list because I'm in, I'm like, I like to say that I'm U.S.'s number one Robbie Williams fan. Like I'm the only one because it's oh, yeah. everybody else I talk to. They're like, who? And I'm like, God damn it. Like, and I'm shaking the shit out of people. But, 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 but yeah. generally, but generally, yeah. I mean, you know, most my, I've had more successful collaborations with, with women. I connect with them in a, you know, a really significant way. Like Amanda Marshall, you know, I loved working with her and we're still in touch. She just put her first album over 20 years out and I'm really happy for her. It's great. She sounds better than ever. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just a you know chemistry thing. I, I like looking at girls better than I like looking at boys. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Hey, it can, it can be the basic. It can be it can be down to the essence. Um, so uh, you know, we 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 touched a bit upon uh, the new album, but uh, you guys just just toured Europe with it. Um, how were those How were those shows? For, like, how's this stuff playing live? It, well, it's playing live is great. It's it's a blast. Um, aside from 
you know, the challenge of me having to actually execute the sax parts every night, which I, I've gotten to. Um, the interesting thing about playing playing in, uh, in, in, in Europe is they don't know the ska history of the band. Um, you know, in Germany, One Way Home was the first successful album, which is really where we got, got deep into the folk rock thing. You know, um, Sweden, in Sweden, 500 Miles is the biggest hit, which is a deep reggae groove. Um, though they don't really know it's a reggae groove. Yeah, I can um, see that. But, it's like yeah, a um, secret. <laughs> Big it's thing. a secret reggae, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, we're, you know, we were curious, okay, how are they going to take the ska thing? And, you know, Rob would explain, you know, we, were, we started out as a ska band and we're back to our roots. And the audience loved it. They loved it. Now, you know, I'm sure you noticed that we we did a we did a couple of reboots on the album. Yes. We, we so Engine Nine Nine Nine, which the Germans loved anyway, so they sing along with it. I don't I don't know. I bet half of them didn't even notice it as a completely different arrangement. They just yeah. knew. Oh, they're doing Engine Nine 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 again. Yes, let's sing along. Engine Nine Nine Nine. Yeah, um, and then um, also the uh, Brother Don't Walk Away just sounds absolutely stellar. Um, so, like, uh, kind of rewriting or rearranging things um, into a, into ska songs. Are there are there any that didn't make that that you had tried that didn't work? Um, there were others that we tried that didn't did work, and we just didn't have time to put them on the album. Oh yeah. So there there might be a volume two. I hope so. I love it, man. It's, it's yeah, cool. no, it all worked. You know, we had to, we had to mess around a bit. I think Engine Nine 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 we might have tried to do as a reggae first, and then um, uh, landed on on the ska thing. It, actually, for I'm I'm very proud of that one. The guitar the the guitar part on that I think is one of my finer moments in recent history. That that sort of Andy Summers like arpeggio that you know not a lot of people play like that. I'm yeah. I'm proud to be one of the few. And then, you know, to fi finding a way that, you know, that felt good to sing it. Because originally, you know, when we recorded those songs, we just we recorded them in the highest key we could possibly scream. Mm -hmm. And after a while, it's like, why are we trying so hard? Let's just make this easy on ourselves. Yeah. I forget what song it was. Uh, somebody was just telling me that they saw Billy Joel and he right before he started singing, he was like, you know, when I wrote this song when I was 19, I didn't expect to be singing or having to sing that note at this age. You know? yeah. But I'll give it a shot. <laughs> um, but uh, the, my, my favorite, I got to I got to tell you, my favorite song in the album is uh, Splice Up the Dance. Like it just <laughs> that song just swings, man. That is that is a beautiful track. Well, I'll tell you the story about Splice Up the Dance. Do you, do you know what splice is? Like have you heard tape, of splice? Like tape splicing or? Well, okay, it's an it's a serve it's an online subscription service. Basically, you pay them monthly, and you have access to loops, one shots of drums, guitars, basses, vocals, entire choruses. It's royalty free. You can literally pull and you just pull it into your your you know your your recording software, and it will. It, it'll automatically put it at the right tempo, change the key for you. I mean, it's crazy. It's like AI, scary AI. So Rob and I decided to just sort of mess around with it and see how far we could go. And that's the track. Basically, that entire track is Splice. Um, we did end up playing on We sing on it, obviously, that, you know, the, the hook is us. Um, Rob played some a little bit of organ on it. I played a little bit of bass 
a little bit of guitar, a little bit of sax. But like that guy in the beginning, the toaster, when you hear this song, I would utter you. That, we have no idea who that guy is. Oh, my God. That's, in- <laughs> that's intense, man. That's- <laughs> and, and, you know, it's royalty free. So it's like, yeah. Wow. And the title is a play on uh, Nice Up the Dance is an old reggae so- song that we used to cover. So it's, it became Splice Up the Dance. Phenomenal. But uh, it's, you know, and it was just, it was so crazy. We had to put it on the record. That's so crazy. That is, that's, that's absolutely wild. Um, so we, um, my, my wife and I recently got to see you guys, um, um, uh, as a surprise as part of the Philly music fest, uh, with low cut Connie. And, oh, yeah. um, that was just an, an, another amazing night. Um, I kind of had a spoiler, uh, Gre- Greg, Seltzer who puts together the Philly music fest, uh, was a guest on the show and he was like, Adam has a great surprise for Philly and it's going to blow people away. And I don't want to tell you. And then after the show was over, he was like, by the way, it's the fucking Hooters. And, uh, and I was like, Oh my God. Uh, so, um, but the, the energy in the room when you got, when he announced you guys coming out was just like an absolute surprise. Like, uh, um, and, and to see you guys in, that tiny little world cafe room was just incredible um how did that come about we're pals with adam you know i I, we hang out and he just he asked and we said yeah oh that's cool yeah, he's he's great. Um, I'm actually trying to get him on the show. Um, we're we're uh, before Art Dealers comes out because uh, I feel like this album is going to be something special. I mean, the three singles I've or the three songs I've heard off of it so far are absolutely stellar. I'm a, a big fan of theirs. Yeah, yeah, me too. I you know it's like anybody they're they're a hit away. They're one yeah. song away from being, you know, get, getting where they where they need to get. Yeah, and you know, I I don't. I, one of the things I want to ask him is, uh, you know, the tough cookie stuff that he did over the pandemic. I would like to think that somebody reached out to him about hosting a show because, like, I felt like that was the perfect showcase of just what a consummate performer he is. Yeah. So uh, at this time, um, if you if you will, we'll enter the jauntlet. These are uh, my stock questions that I ask everyone. The first section, the one hit wonders just puts uh, w- w- you're just going to pick a favorite. Uh, number one, Billy Joel or Elton John? Oh, man, that's a really tough one. Uh, I'm going to punt and say Billy Joel and Elton John. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Uh, number two, Debbie Harry or Joan Jett? Oh, man, these are tough. Um, I'd have to say Joan Jett. Yeah. Okay. Staying local. I like it. Yeah. By a hair. By a hair. Uh, number three, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner? Oh, you're killing me here. <laughs> um, probably not a popular answer, but I'd have to say Tina Turner. All right. All right. I respect it. Uh, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Oh, Nirvana. That's yeah. like saying Beatles or Dave Clark Five. <laughs> Actually, no, that's doing a disservice to the Dave Clark Five. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. Uh, Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks? Janis Joplin. All right. No contest. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one, but uh, Beatles or the Stones? For me, Beatles. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I have people who, I know people who would say Stones and I, I won't say I respect them for it, but I respect, I respect their, their, um, their freedom of choice. Yes. Okay. And I hope that they'll see the light someday. Uh, last one of the one hit wonders, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or Stairway to Heaven? Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Hands down. Stairway to Heaven, great guitar solo, great guitars, great intro. Um, God, I'm going to take a lot of shit for this, but 
I never loved Robert Plant's voice. Okay. All right. It's acceptable. Um, I mean, here, here's the deal. For me, one came around a copy of the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart. Mm-hmm. I know I should I could get crucified for that. But it's like, you know, Rod Stewart or, or Robert Plant, come on. I mean, the first time I heard Rod, the first time you heard Rod Stewart's voice, it was a, it was like, what the fuck? It was that moment. It was a Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment. It was the Who at the Electric Factory. It was Springsteen at Uncle or Uncle Al's Earlton Lounge in 1973. Yeah. All right. All right. Which I is a whole other story. <laughs> I respect it. Um, the 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 last section is the top ten t- countdown, but I know you're on a time crunch here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna trunc I'm gonna truncate this because there's only one question that I've been dying to ask you that is part of my stock questions I ask everyone, and it's mostly because I want you to tell these people who don't know the answer to this. But um, my my number three on this is um, uh, what was your first concert? The Beatles. Unbelievable. Yeah, I know. I know. I saw the Beatles at the. Uh, Baltimore Convention Center, because I had a cousin, uh, my mother's cousin was a disc jockey in Norfolk, Virginia, and he got us in, he almost got us to meet them. Oh my God. That's incredible. What what year was that? That was um, 64, August 64. Wow. September 64, I know. How do, how do you how do you ever go to a live show again after that? Like that's just, you hit the jackpot on right out the gate. (laughs) I know, I know, really, you know, it was, you know, kind of like losing your virginity to, uh, you know, whoever the, the iconic beauty of the time is. Um, and you know what? They were great. The Beatles were great. Yeah, they sang great. great. They played great. They couldn't hear themselves. It didn't matter. That's great. They were that's, all that. That's fantastic. Well, I, I uh, let me let you get to your vocal coach and well, stuff like that. Yeah, as long, oh. as, as long, I'm in the car as long as, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm another eight minutes away so keep them coming all right sure all right well i'll back up uh number one what was your first john what was the first thing you were obsessed with when you were a kid first thing i was obsessed with when i was a kid oh i might have lost you vocally no now you're on the now you're on the on the wi-fi the uh bluetooth in the car Uh, the first thing i was obsessed with as a kid was um zorro really okay yes i was four years old i wanted to be zorro and actually Thinking about it in the the uh, the nervous night days of the Hooters, I kind of looked like Zorro. <laughs> yeah, I could see it. That's awesome. Uh, number two, what's your current John? What are you into right now? Um, I'm into being I'm into being in the Hooters. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, are we talk are we talking musically, culturally. Yeah, whatever um, whatever moves you. Um, uh, you know, I'm musically it's tough, man. It, it's out there. Not a lot of contemporary my imagination. Uh, I like Cat Bite. Um, I would actually like to work with them. I have an idea for, for, for a song that I'd like to try doing with them. Um, Billie Eilish, I think, is amazing. I think she's the great hope for the future. She's the, the one timeless voice that I've heard in a long time, unique and timeless. And I think she and Phineas actually write real songs that may stand the best of time. I agree with it 100%, man. Um, I'm going to skip some of these. Uh, number seven on this is, what's an unappreciated, John? What's something you wish more people paid more attention to? The Hooters. <laughs> no, that, 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 was a, that was a low and inside. Um, 
Something I wish people would pay more attention to. That's good. Um, I wish they'd pay more attention to each other. I wish people would pay more attention to how other people live, you know, different cultures, you know, different, you know, ethnically, racially, religiously, um, you know, pay attention to the fact that these are actual human beings that, that, that we're, you know, hating on and ridiculing for whatever reason. Beautiful answer. Beautiful answer. Um, number, uh, I'm jumping around numbers, uh, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they release living or dead. Oh, the Beatles, obviously. Um, uh, living Billie Eilish. I'll, I'll consume Billie Eilish. Um, uh, the last rock band that really got me excited was, was King Tuff. You know them? No. King Tuff, T-U-F-F. I heard a song on, uh, actually it was a live a live uh, studio recording of uh, of a song called "Black Moon Sun" in uh, on 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 XPN, and it kind of reminded me of uh, of T Rex a little bit, but with some more some more bottom end. Okay. Um, I got into them. They, they you know their output has been kind of uh, I don't love everything they've done, but I'll keep listening to them. Um, and Joe Jackson, Joe Jackson. I don't love everything he's done, but everything he's done has been great. Yeah. You know, my favorite thing about him is that, like, each time a new album comes out, I never know what to expect. Like, it's always just like, yeah, yeah what, what are we getting into this week, Joe? Like, <laughs> Yes, which which Joe are we getting today? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I and I love very uh, uh, multifaceted uh, versions of him, too, like, for yeah. all different reasons, you know, different different moods, different reasons. So uh, we actually ran out of time and you can hear there's some cellular dropouts here and stuff like that. But Eric was super cool and gracious and actually called me back later so that we could finish the jauntlet and the rest of the interview. So for you now, here is the rest of the interview. But yeah, so we'll um, pick back up. I, I got some some more of those top 10 countdowns that we can get cool. through. Here. All right. Yeah. Um, so another one you did first concert was the Beatles, uh, n number four. What was your last concert? What was the last live show you saw? Oh, um, that I actually went out to see. Yeah. Um, do, do other acts on festivals that we play count? <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Actually. Yeah. I mean, w uh, I was really impressed by Larkin Poe. Do you know oh, them? No, yes. Yeah. I first saw them, uh, playing at the, the, uh, the casino in Chester. They were part of uh, Chris, Christian Bush. Uh, he, he, he's a country artist. He's half of Sugarland. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And they were playing in his band, and I was just blown away by them then. This was 2013, and I've just watched them develop along the way. And then we did a festival with them in Germany, and they were just, man, all the right things for all the right reasons. And, you know, talk about just being a hit song away from it because they're, they're the real deal. Yeah, I, I haven't I haven't seen them live, but I can only imagine how good they sound. They just, you know, they shred and they got, you know, they got their sassy and they sing great. Yeah. Awesome. They look great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number five, uh, what was your favorite concert? What was the best live show you ever saw? Wow. Um, highlights. I, I can't, I can't, I mean, the two that probably are the most memorable to me are, um, um, when I saw the who doing Tommy for the first time at the yeah. electric factory in May of 68, 69. Um, and then the, the, um, 
the first time I saw Springsteen, which was at Uncle Al's Earlton Lounge. It was a bowling alley in New Jersey. This was like August of 73. And I wasn't prepared. I I had heard a little bit on the radio. To me, it just kind of sounded like another New Dylan kind of acoustic guitar thing. And by the third song, I was just, I was sold. I was just like, wow. And the yeah. show just went on and on. And, you know, I was so impressed, not just by, his, you know, his presence and his, his songs and his singing, but his guitar playing and the arrangements. Like he, he and, he and, um, and Clarence just doing these, you know, harmony, guitar, sax, harmony, and unison lines. It was just, the musicality was just mind-blowing. You know, it's one it's one of the things that, like, not just in popular music, but in music in general that, like, I really miss. And, like, I was talking to somebody about this recently. Like, you know, you, you listen to, like, uh, uh, Steinman's uh, pieces on Bad Out of Hell, and you listen to, like, mm-hmm. early Springsteen and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, like, scenes from an Italian restaurant. And, like, there used to just be an epic nature to music. Yep. And, and it's just gone. Like, and, and I know that, you know, we're just getting more and more disposable to try to fit in a 30 second TikTok video or something like that yeah. but like I really do miss like just the 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 kind of behemoth epic song that you know you'd sure. always get like at least one on an album you know I was a big fan of Yes you know in their during their peak years I would listen you know I listen I remember when Close to the Edge came out man you know uh, what's that the three songs total I mean yeah. I that was that lived on my turntable for for days just tr- just get trying to get inside it and you know understand what was going on you know yeah. and i i got i got to give honorable mention to a, a few of the dead shows that i saw i saw the dead a bunch of times in the early 70s um and when they when they were good they were amazing the room would levitate wow. um then the rest of the time they were it was like really you know what did the deadhead say when he ran out of and out of drugs this band sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny and it's true. Like it's, it's really weird. Like, uh, uh, bands like that where you're just like, well, what version did you get tonight? Cause it could, like you said, yeah. it could either be the most magical experience ever, or it could be like, you know, are they still able to do this or. I mean, that's funny. I'm wearing, I'm wearing the dark star dead co shirt. Yeah. Right Cause my, my, my daughter who's the last person I would have ever expected to see anything dead related. She was her best friend dragged her to see, to see uh, dead and company with John Mayer. And she was really impressed. Yeah. I have, I have, which a few I, friends. I, I wish I'd had the chance to see it. Cause I think, you know, John Mayer is well, a jealousy, hatred. Cause I always wanted that gig. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be Jerry Garcia in oh, tune, the in tune. <laughs> <laughs> not tripping version. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, no, I think, I, I think, I think Jerry's one of the most underrated guitar players of all time. Definitely. I mean, outside of the dead community who idolized him, he was an amazing guitar player, really innovative. And he had soul and he really had chops. And I don't care what anybody says. I loved him. Yeah, and his his improvisation skills were just like unmatched, really, and and yep. and like he masked it a lot too, you know. Like you know, you, you would go back and like you know, I I think about um some some of the live versions of uh, Eyes of the World, um that I've heard, and he's just like just completely painting a picture that like is just so understated on 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 some of those recordings. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, number six, who you never seen live that you wish you would have? They can be living or dead. I mean, you saw the Beatles, so for fuck's sake. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, let me think. Uh, yeah, let, let's think dead. Um, I mean, I saw the Beatles. I saw the Stones with Brian Jones. Never got. No, I saw Aretha, actually. <laughs> oh, geez. Um, uh, there's got to be somebody. I saw Dylan when he was good. Um, uh, here's a good story. Dylan, Dylan actually called and asked me to play guitar in his band, and I said no. No way. I already had a band. I had a gig already. Oh, my God. What what year? Like, what's it? What era? 90. 1990. Okay. G.E. Smith was playing guitar with him at the time. And G, George and I are friends. And we did a festival together with them in Finland. And, um, you know, and G.E. told me he was probably going to go back to Saturday Night Live. And uh, a few days later, we were in Tokyo. I get a call from G.E. saying, uh, I gave your number to Bob Dylan. Is that all right? He's going to call you. Oh my God! So we talked a couple times, and uh, it, you know, I mean, it would have been cool, but I think it's even cooler to say I said no to Bob Dylan. Said no, one hundred percent, man. That's a story. Yeah, no, actually, you know, who I, I I wish I had gotten to see Johann Sebastian Bach. Oh, that's perform. a good. That's a good one. Very I, good I've gotten in, I've gotten into him. You know, that was sort of my pandemic thing. I learned how to play the violin sonatas on mandolin. I put a ton of that shit up on YouTube and, you know, and Instagram and, um, and, um, it was a, it was a commitment. I'm still working on it, but just to, you know, trying to imagine like the, the, the brain and to have the skill to be able to play that shit. I just, I would give anything to be, to be able to witness that. Yeah. It always amazes me too, that like, um, those guys were able to write those things without, you know, having a full orchestra at your fingertips to be able yeah. to imagine it all, you know, just based on notes and whatnot. Yeah. And like, it's, it's a level of theory that like, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm lamenting a seven minute rock song, but like, you know, the epic nature yeah. of, of, uh, some of those symphonies, man. I mean, the, um, the, uh, the Chaconne movement of the D minor violin sonata, if I play it at moderate tempo, it's 15 minutes long. This is one movement of a violin sonata, a, a solo violin, and it does not get boring. It's incredible. That is incredible. Uh, number yeah. eight, what's your uh, what's your favorite album? Do you have a favorite album of all time? Revolver. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting choice because like I feel like it's it's the it's part of the perfect marriage of later Beatles with early Beatles. Like there's still some some fingerprints of the early years in there, you know. Yeah, they were still a rock band. I mean, they were still a rock band when they did Pepper, and I love Pepper. Don't get me wrong, but I I just like the aesthetic of of Revolver or even Rubber Soul. I mean, it's kind of they're they're kind of one album. I mean, God, they did them both in the same year. How crazy is that, right? Uh, we did that one. Did that one. Oh, so the the last one is uh, what is your favorite John of all time? Doesn't have to be music; can be anything you want it to be. Mm. No, my favorite John of all time is is music. Yeah, and it's not just listening to music and playing music; it's living music. It's the relationships that I have with the other people who play music. It's the relationship I have with myself and trying to, you know, push myself when I need to be pushed and let myself give myself credit for a job well done. Um, it's the opportunity it gives me for self-improvement. 
and, and again, and the relationships and the people that I get to make music with and the relationships I've made. I mean, I wouldn't have met my wife if I wasn't flying to a festival in, in northern Sweden in, in 1993. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a lifeblood. You know, what, here's something I, I'd love to ask you as not just a, a creator, but also a listener and, you know, someone uh, who has music kind of baked in their DNA. Like what and I know it's not something that can easily be named, but like um, what do you look for in a song? Like it, if you're looking for something to just like. And I know it's one of those. I know it when I hear it. But like, what 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 is like a perfect song to you? Perfect song is the song that reaches out to me. The yeah. song that is that that has been looking for me, and waiting for me. I felt that the first time I ever felt that was when I was eight years old, nine years old, and um, a, a record in Japanese, which was called Sukiyaki, came out. Which was uh, you've probably heard of it. It was. It was maybe the first viral hit in in, in the world. Literally, um, I don't know if you know the story behind it, but um, you know there's a big uh, uh, Japanese community in uh, Sacramento after the war because after the you know the horrific um, uh, internment camps, a lot of the Japanese Americans stayed and settled in Sacramento. Uh, a young man w- was visiting his uncle from 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 Japan, and he brought a record with him by an artist named Kyu Sakamoto. The song was called Uyo Muita Aruko. And his uncle knew someone at the radio station, played it once. The phones went crazy. And within the within the year, this that it was a number one global hit because a, a disc jockey played it one time in Sacramento. That's the power of a melody. And they named it Sukiyaki because it was just a Japanese word that everybody could say. Yeah, but the actual lyric is "Ueo muita aruko," which means something to the effect of "lean my face back to keep the tears from running down." Wow! And the melody and the sound, the sound of his voice and the the orchestration, it just it reached out and touched me. And I felt the same thing when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And I I wish I could feel more of that now from 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 new music. I try. I go to the Spotify top 50, man, and it just, it's bleak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that well, that's your mistake. It's the top 50 because that's, well, <laughs> that's not where they hide the good stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, but that's what, you know, that's you look, what, oh, go ahead. Look, look at top 10 charts from the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s. It's like, you know, every song. Yeah. My kids who weren't even born yet, they know all those songs. Look at the top ten from the past twenty years. Tell me three songs and and what what which of those songs are wedding bands going to be playing in ten years? Right. You know, I I do some DJing on the side, and um, the uh, like I'll get a request for a song, and I'm like, I've never heard this thing in my life. Like I don't even know what it is. I'll look at it on like Spotify or like iTunes or something like that. It's not there, and then they'll be like, No, 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 it's on it's on SoundCloud or or it's a, it's a TikTok, and I'm like, wow. That's I'm like, how, how <laughs> help me out here, like, <laughs> but but it's and you true, know. You know. I, and I want to love it. I want I want something to come on and, and look for me, reach yeah. out and touch me. 
Yeah. You know, and that's why I appreciate a station like WXPN, because like they 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 still have human beings listening to music and, and playing and sharing music um, that that still can speak to me. Like, you know, uh, I, I told this story to someone recently, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with the song Paprika by Japanese Breakfast. Um, no. But there's 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 a tone in uh, Michelle's voice, the the front woman and, and main kind of creator mm-hmm. behind it. Um, there's a tone in her voice in the chorus that hit that just absolutely hits me on a level that like I don't know how to formulate into words. It's just oh, like yeah. it's like it fills me with like this just powerful feeling of joy. All right, yeah. and it's so rare that that happens anymore. Um, but it's just great. Like finding something like that is just absolutely incredible. Yep. And a, a melody, something that you walk away singing. Yes. You know, like, like you know, the, the, the thing you've just talked about, that's a moment in time. That's the sound of her voice singing that note. But, it, you know, if you heard your your wife, your your friend singing it, would that would that affect you the same way? Right. Probably not. You know, that's the thing. It's like I'm what I'm talking about is the combination of an amazing voice like that with a delivery like that an emotional content like that singing an undeniable melody and lyric that's timeless yes 100 percent. is that too much to ask why can't we just get more of that all the time yes why can't you just create this mana this audio mana and just give it out to the world <laughs> and look you know i'm as guilty as you know i try i can't you know i can't tell you the last time i wrote a great timeless song I'm always trying. I think some of the work I've done with Alexis hopefully will get heard and will will turn out to be that. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, you definitely have. I mean, like you like that's one of the things that has to feel really great is that you've created that for people. Like you have you have songs that 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 are the are people's kind of that first time I heard, you know, one of us like it was and it yep. was like it was really breathtaking, you know, like and and not just like you said, not just lyrically, not just vocally, but just the entire combination um, of Joan's performance and and the the words and and melodies that you wrote. Yep, yep. I mean, and and Alexis does an incredible version of it, or at least I heard her do an incredible version yep. at that Loka Connie show. Yep. No. Yeah. Uh, she's uh, you know listen. She came to me at a time when I had sworn off working with new, untested, unsigned artists, and I heard her voice and I thought. Okay, I'll meet her, and we met, and it was just like, I just want to hang out with this person, I, and I love her voice, and I love her, 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 the way she writes songs, and she's family. It's great, you know. We, we're all we're we're family now. It's absolutely yeah. great, you know. And um, that's at that at this point, it's as mu- it's as much about that for me as it is about anything. You know, I don't I don't I don't have any illusions of, of you know writing another one of us or 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 a time after time. I've, I've got my, I've gotten mine. Um, I do this because I love the people that I do it with. And I love, I love the feeling that I get. And that's my, my job. 
That's a beautiful, beautiful. Um, I, I want to thank you for doing this because, you know, I had Dave Haas on the show and we were talking about you and he was like, you know, oh. you got to get Eric on the show. And I was like, for fuck's sake. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, it's not, it's not, ha- not happening because I don't want him, you know, uh, but now it actually did yeah. happen. And I'm like, absolutely oh, cool. like floored because this was an epic conversation. And I'm so happy that you, um, and so thankful that you, you called back to, to, to wrap up, uh, with me because uh like i said you know uh not my first concert not my second concert those were both david bowie but my third concert wow. was the was the um uh, uh mmr 25th anniversary um which was the first time i got to see you guys live and that was incredible and one of my favorite concerts of all time um was that final um 2009 show at the spectrum uh, that you guys did with hall and Oates oh, and todd yeah. rundgren which was just a magical night um was, so yep so like I said, man, um, you've, you've been a lifeblood, um, sonically, uh, throughout my entire life. So I thank you so much, not just for doing the show, uh, but also for creating, um, all of the beautiful, uh, art that you've created. Um, uh, uh it's like <laughs> absolutely amazing that, uh, you did this. So thank you. Cool. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Believe me, whatever you got out of it, I got more. My thanks again to Eric for joining me on the show today. You can catch the Hooters on the I Want My 80s Tour alongside Rick Springfield, Paul Young, and Tommy Two-Tone all across the United States through September. Tickets and dates are available at www.hootersmusic.com. Their new album, Rocking and Swing, is out now, and it's available on all streaming sites. And their new video is premiering this Friday, August 11th. For what song? I don't know. It's a surprise. Follow the Hooters on their socials at Hooters Music on Instagram and at The Hooters on Facebook and Twitter or X or whatever Elon has decided to call it this week. Links to all of those are in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the Yo That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And gang, you know it is not too late to get yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this show. And while you are there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get all of the updates delivered straight into your inbox. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my John for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter X at yo that's my John and search yo that's my John on YouTube to find the yo that's my John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out and touch some John. Damn, that was a fun chat. Did you guys dig it? Because I really dug it. And I got some more dope chats on the horizon. Hope you join us again for another ride. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be... Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. 
If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo, that's my John at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. <laughs>